This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, everyone, everywhere. Laszlo Montgomery back with you again. Thanks for tuning in to the China History Podcast, episode 300, Toisson Trescientos. My thanks to every one of you who have suffered through me for the past 299 CHP episodes, going back a dozen years to that first episode in June of 2010. Thank you one and all for your kind support going back all these years, and it's been the pleasure of my life to have met and gotten to know so many of you. What an unexpected treat that's been. Anyway, we're back, as promised last time, with the Concluding part two of our little three-penny overview of the history of Chinese alchemy. We only got as far as the Western Han last time in part one. Well, like most things in life, you have to walk before you could run, and so it was with alchemy. Many people who lived the good life, well, life was so good they never wished for it to end. And their hopes and dreams provided the market demand, and the alchemists became the suppliers. I introduced Zhou Yan last time. He introduced the nexus between yin and yang and the wuxing, the five elements, how they interacted with each other and how these changes were put in motion. And all these failures to discover the elixir of life involved one heck of a lot of trial and error, with emperors Xin Shi Huang and Han Wu Di willingly serving as guinea pigs. Then came Liu Xiang's high-profile failure, despite all the financial backing from the Han Emperor Xuan, even with unlimited resources and not lacking for help, still, the great Liu Xiang, in his day, always the smartest guy in the room wherever he went, 1st century BC, even he couldn't produce it. That was quite a shock to many would-be alchemists. If the brilliant Liu Xiang couldn't do it, what chance did anyone else have? So things went quiet for a couple hundred years. The experimentation never let up, though. But we don't see or hear much, in the historical record, anyway. So let's take a quick look at some of the more important documents from this time that managed to survive the rise and fall of the dynasties and make it down to our day. By a landslide, the greatest repository of alchemical texts are found in the Daozang, the Taoist canon that was compiled first in 400 AD, then again in the Tang in 748, and again in 1016 during the Song, and once more during the Ming in 1444. This collection makes up all the important works of Taoism, and it's grown larger with each new Daozang compilation. There were three texts included that came from what was called the Tai Qing, or Great Clarity Tradition of Taoism. And these came before Ge Hong's time, and we're going to get to them in a second. These three books were called The Book of Great Clarity, The Book of the Nine Elixirs, and The Book of the Golden Liquor. The Tai Qing Jing, the Jiu Dan Jing, and the Jin Ye Jing. This is where China's alchemical tradition started to heat up. It all began in Anhui and Jiangsu mostly, the Jiangnan region of China. 
the Tai Ching tradition of Taoism began there and spread outwards. And in these three books, mostly the Book of the Nine Elixirs, for the first time we see a bunch of alchemical recipes and specific benefits of each one. Some would grant the adept transcendence, immortality, or the ability to summon spirits or gods or exercise spirits. Some could cure various illnesses. And as I mentioned last time in part one, in all these cases involving elixirs, in order to make it all work, you had to accompany the ingestion of the elixir with prescribed rituals, ceremonies, and offerings. So with the growth of the Tai Ching tradition of Taoism, we get our first glimpses of alchemy. And remember, some elixirs need not be ingested. They merely needed to be concocted and placed near you. You recall last episode the case of Li Shaojun and Han Wu Di. Master Li taught Emperor Wu he only needed to consume his meals off plates and cups cast from alchemical gold that was derived from cinnabar. Even from the earliest days in such ancient civilizations as India, Egypt, and of course China, gold-based concoctions have been used. Throughout world history, going back to 5000 BC, humans have ascribed certain properties to gold due to its resistance to corrosion and rust and that it didn't decay, and its brilliance, of course. And chief among these golden properties mentioned by the ancients were perfection, longevity, and immortality. So these three main scriptures of Tai Ching Taoism that I've mentioned, they were some of the earliest sources that contained texts concerning alchemy. The first work that wholly addressed the subject of alchemy was called the Tan Tong Qi. And this work is credited to Wei Bo Yang. You recall from last episode, he was the first one to note down the chemical composition of gunpowder in 142 AD. Now, this work may be credited to Wei Bo Yang, but he's another one of those characters from Chinese history who may or may not have ever lived. The Tantong Qi was probably written by a number of people over a period of years or decades. It's still considered the oldest complete alchemical book in existence. There may have been, and probably were, other texts that preceded the Tantong Qi, but this is the oldest in existence, 2nd century AD. In perusing the Tantong Qi, or Zhou Yi Tantong Qi, you have to take it on faith that our bodies are controlled or influenced by cosmological forces that are contained in the five elements of fire, water, wood, metal, and earth. The book, which goes by a whole assortment of English titles, uh, the kinship of the three in accordance with the Book of Changes being one of them, is filled with cosmology, Taoism, and alchemy. The great sinologist and professor emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania, Nathan Sivan, wrote that in the Tan Tong Qi, they sought, quote, to construct a model of the Tao to produce in a limited space on a shortened time scale the cyclical energies of the cosmos, end quote. It may sound far out to us in 2022, but when you consider the times and what was and wasn't known, these were very new and profound discoveries. No one had concluded definitively, prior to the Tang Dynasty at least, that this couldn't be done, mixing up an elixir that gave humans eternal life. The discussion of alchemy and the Tantong Qi revolves mostly around elixirs derived from mercury and lead. 
the forces of the five elements, and yin and yang on everything. I really wanted to get to Ge Hong in this episode. Where Chinese alchemy is concerned, he's a central figure and usually gets top billing. Like a lot of these historical figures from the old days, no one can agree on his years of birth and death. Four different sources I looked at all gave four different dates. But all agreed he lived mid to late 3rd century, the Western Qin Dynasty. He achieved great renown in his own lifetime as a Taoist philosopher, a writer of medical treatises, as a literatus, historian, and most of all, as an alchemist. Ge Hong came from quite an illustrious family. He was born in Jirong, a city midway between Nanjing and Zhenjiang. That was the home base for the Ge family. He had this legendary relative called Ge Xuan, who was a well-known Taoist figure during the Eastern Han. Now, according to the legend, Ge Xuan received these secret Taoist scriptures from none other than Zhuo Ci himself. Now, lovers of Romance of the Three Kingdoms may remember Zhuo Ci as the character Wu Jiao Xiansheng, Master Blackhorn. Zhuo Ci was a Taoist master without peer who had these amazing magical powers. He was born during the reign of Han Chao Di, son of Emperor Wu, in 80 BC, and survived till the end of the Three Kingdoms period in 280, living a respectable 300 years. Now, besides all these amazing and fantastical powers, Zhuo Ci also mastered the alchemical arts and passed on these secret scriptures in his possession to Ge Xuan, who in turn passed them down to his grand-nephew, Ge Hong. So Ge Hong, in his day, carried quite a proud mantle and was respected not only for the breadth of his scholarship, but also because he came from a very fine pedigree. The most famous works attributed to Ge Hong was, above all, the Bao Pu Zi, as well as the Shen Xian Zhuan, which was a collection of biographies on 84 Taoist gods and immortals. Ge Hong said that, in the three centuries since Liu Xiang's high-profile failure back in the Western Han, vigorous alchemical experimentation continued to be practiced. Now, his main critique of Liu Xiang was that he placed too much emphasis on the physical aspects of alchemy and not enough on the spiritual. Liu focused too much on the transmutation of the materials and too little on the rituals and ceremonies that were essential to the whole process. Ge Hong's work, the Bao Pu Zi, listed dozens of recipes for producing elixirs of life. And the way Ge Hong explained it, one could not learn alchemy from reading books. The true wisdom came from oral teachings passed down over the years. He said it repeatedly. There's more to it than just mixing and heating compounds. The rituals had to be observed in conjunction with the actual ingestion of the elixir. This included things like fasting, performing ceremonies to commune with the gods. I mean, you had to be a true believer. If you looked at these elixirs as merely a concoction to consume and achieve immortality or to achieve some sort of remedy, you were wasting your time, to put it crudely. By the way, just as early alchemists stumbled onto the discovery of gunpowder, Ge Hong is credited with the discovery of stannic sulfide, better known as mosaic gold. This is the pigment that's been long used for bronzing and in gilding wooden frames for paintings. This was another in what's probably a very 
long line of examples of unintended consequences of alchemical experimentation. So we remember Ge Hong most for the Baopuzi, the most famous of the roughly 100 or so texts that exist that concern laboratory alchemy. Baopuzi is not so much the name of the book as it is Ge Hong's Hao name. One's Hao is a moniker that is picked up along the way and was used as a form of address by one's professional or artistic colleagues, rather than the personal name one was born with, sort of like what Sting is for Matthew Gordon Sumner. So this most important of alchemical texts, the Baopuzi, is simply named after Gehong. The Baopuzi dates from about 317 to 332. Constantine the Great and the Edict of Milan in the West, these were the immediate years following the grisly end of the Western Jin dynasty. There are 70 chapters, or books, of the Baopuzi, of which 20 are called the Inner Chapters. And the Inner Chapters garner the most interest because those are the ones that concern themselves with immortality, charms, exorcisms, the immortals, and of course, alchemy. The Baopuzi contains a collection of essays on alchemy, immortality, legalism, and society. And this work is considered to be the most highly regarded among the texts concerning alchemy. The original has been lost, but as is the case so often, that Chinese historical propensity to, from time to time, update these massive compendia or encyclopedias saved the Baopuzi from oblivion. And it lives on as a work contained inside the Daozang, the Taoist canon. Now, regarding the matter of alchemical gold, it's stated in the Baopuzi, quote, If with this alchemical gold you made dishes and bowls and eat and drink of them, you shall live long, end quote. And the Baopuzi was very clear in stating that artificial gold derived from alchemy was superior to natural gold. And this was because of all the alchemical processes it had gone through. And these processes, acting as a value chain, allowed the alchemical gold to acquire all kinds of special desired properties along the way. And like the great Tang poet Li Bai, Ge Hong was held in very high esteem in his own day. His bio is immortalized in the Book of Jin. Besides his obvious scholarship, Ge Hong was also lionized for his open mind and willingness to explore new ideas or sciences. He wrote harshly of those who were, quote, unwilling to take seriously either books that do not proceed from the school of the Duke of Zhou or the facts that Confucius had not tested, end quote. Ge Hong lived on in Guangzhou for many years, and that's where he passed in 364 thereabouts. Well, after all hell had broken loose in the north of China, and after multitudes of northern Chinese people fled en masse to the south of the beleaguered country to safer pastures below the Yangtze River, where the alchemical tradition was already studied and quite advanced. And the next time you're fortunate enough to find yourself in the capital of Zhejiang province, Hangzhou, when you take a stroll around West Lake, there's a hill there called Gelingshan, where Ge Hong once resided and where he conducted a number of his experiments, whilst enjoying a nice fourth-century view of this scenic treasure of China. One more fun fact about Ge Hong, he carried out a lot of research and experimentation with tin in particular, and is credited with being the one who first invented tin foil. 
Now, they didn't use it back then to wrap up their leftovers. Its early application was for spirit money used at funerals and graveside ceremonies. So that was Ge Hong. He did quite a bit to lift up alchemy's respectability in China, especially with regards to Wai Dan, external alchemy. Let's take a quick look at Shang Qing, highest purity tradition of Taoism. This came after Tai Qing Taoism, already mentioned. Now, I'm only going to introduce a couple people who have links with alchemy. First came Lady Wei Huatsun. She was a contemporary of Ge Hong and lived during the Jin Dynasty. Now, according to legend, she was a very devout and you know, serious believer in Taoism. And one day she received a number of scriptures handed to her by certain Taoist immortals. And these words, gifted to Lady Wei, ended up forming the bedrock of the Shangqing sect of Taoism. And it was based in Maoshan, Mount Mao, not far from where Ge Hong grew up. Now, among these texts passed on to Lady Wei was the Huang Ting Jing, or Yellow Court Classic. And it offered adherents a kind of guidebook on Taoist meditation practices that did much to increase the health and longevity of the practitioner. Now, more than anything else, it emphasized meditation and self-cultivation and demonstrated how to achieve this. Unlike with the older Tai Ching tradition, Shang Qing highest purity Taoism wasn't much of a Wai Dan external alchemical text and didn't get into the matter of elixirs. As we'll see as we get further up the China historical timeline, Internal alchemy, called Nei Dan, will replace this external Wai Dan form of the art. Nei means inner, so it relied more on one's internal powers that resided in humans to attain the powers that up till then had been attempted through external alchemy, which called for the ingestion of these elixirs. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. The other major figure in the Shangqing tradition of Taoism, where alchemy was concerned, that is, is Tao Hongjing. He was yet another figure from China history who, in their day, achieved so much renown across such a broad spectrum of the humanities, sciences, arts. He was another in a millennia-long line of polymaths in China who also served the government in various capacities. And he lived from 456 to 536 during the Northern and Southern Dynasties period, serving the rulers in the Liu Song, Southern Qi, and most notably the Liang Dynasty, where he enjoyed a personal relationship with the founder, Emperor Wu. Tao Hongqing is also referred to as a founder of the Shangqing sect of Taoism. This is due in part for the work he did in compiling all the most basic and essential Shangqing texts, including those from Lady Wei Huatsun. He was a very enthusiastic believer in Taoism and had a passion for searching far and wide to find as many of the lost texts as possible. 
just as Xuanzang would do later on in the Tang, traveling to India to retrieve all those lost Buddhist texts. Tao Hongjing had enjoyed a wonderful career as a government official, but threw it all away to go move to Maoshan and devote his remaining years to Taoism. And part of his time was spent exploring Taoist alchemy and taking a close look at all the things Ge Hong had written about. And just as Liu Xiang had Han Emperor Xuan as a benefactor back in 60 BC to discover the elixir of life, so it was with Tao Hongjing, who enjoyed the full support of Liang Emperor Wu. Liang Wu Di, we remember, as one of those emperors who, more vigorously than most, promoted education and advanced the faith of Buddhism. He wasn't a Taoist, but he supported Tao Hongjing in his quest. After all, if Tao Hongjing was able to succeed, Liang Emperor Wu would be the first in line to get a shot at trying out the elixir. Well, you know how it is. Fifth, sixth centuries. If a working alchemical recipe and the requisite rituals had been discovered, no one knew about them. But it was accepted as a given that they did exist somewhere waiting to be discovered. So Tao Hongjing, besides carrying out all his hard work propagating Shangqing Taoism, also worked diligently on discovering the elixir of life. And Emperor Wu came to Maoshan a number of times to check up on his friend and to see what progress had been made, the Liang Dynasty imperial capital not being too distant in present-day Nanjing. After trying and failing many times, Tao Hongjing, in frustration perhaps, hit the road from 508 to 512 and traveled through parts of Zhejiang and Fujian and continued on with his alchemical research. Then from 520 onwards until his death in 536, Tao Hongjing retired to Maoshan and devoted himself to Taoism and growing the Shangqing highest purity sect of Taoism, which grew quickly in China. Historians tend to group Ge Hong and Tao Hongjing together because they both shared an equal passion for reconciling physical science with the five elements. Less than half a century after Tao Hongjing's passing, Yang Qian would found the Sui dynasty, followed by the Tang, where Wai Dan, external alchemy, came roaring back. The Shangqing sect continued to spread and grow, and as I said, this tradition promoted Nei Dan, internal alchemy, and not so much the white Dan external type. During the Sui, there was one noted alchemist, Su Yuanming, and he wrote about potable medicinal gold in his noted work, Discourse on the Contents of the Precious Treasury of the Earth, which contained 15 kinds of medicinal gold that treated a number of maladies. And because alchemy had this surge in popularity during the Tang, there were many noted practitioners of the trade, and one of them was Sun Sun Miao, known in his time as the Yao Wang, the king of medicine. Though he's closely associated with traditional Chinese medicine, Sun Sun Miao also dabbled in Wai Dan, external alchemy, and left behind one of the major works, the Dan Jing Yao, the essential formulas of alchemical classics, sort of a 7th century joy of cooking for alchemy, and another one of the major works in this art. Despite the abysmal track record going back to Qin Shi Huang, the practice of Wai Dan really surged in the Tang Dynasty, 7th to 10th centuries. 
Tang alchemists and scientists were so much smarter now than all those who had come before them. Even Zhou Yan and Ge Hong, what did they know compared to the smartest men and women of the Tang? And where others had failed in the past, there were those who believed they could succeed. Along with Sun Sun Miao, the other major figure in Chinese alchemy during the Tang was Chen Shaowei. He focused his white Dan efforts on the yin-yang aspects of refining cinnabar and creating an elixir from mercury. Now, cinnabar, I mentioned this mineral five times last episode and once already here. You've all heard of it. In nature, cinnabar is one of the primary ores containing the element mercury. And like with opium, humankind discovered cinnabar very early in history, and it's found all over the world. In China, the provinces of Sichuan and Hunan are loaded with cinnabar. One of the primary uses of the brilliant blood-red cinnabar crystals was to produce a pigment that's been used throughout history for the color vermilion. Now, Daoists associated this vermilion, or Chinese red as some called it, with life and eternity. It's a very special color in Chinese culture. Cinnabar is quite soft and just loaded with mercury. It's actually not terribly safe to handle. In fact, unsafe handling of cinnabar, as attractive as it is to look at, can lead to the same kind of mercury poisoning one could get by consuming it. Alchemists would crush the cinnabar into a powder where it was then heated to temperatures where the mercury contained within would evaporate and be collected by the alchemist. This was an old trick by the time of the Tang Dynasty. After having a nice run, along with Taoism in general during the Tang, why Dan alchemy started to fade from the scene after it was all over for the dynasty, and Nei Dan internal alchemy quickly filled the vacuum left behind. Again, Nei Dan involves spiritual and meditative methods to bring about transcendence or to affect whatever changes were being desired by the adept. Needham referred to Nei Dan as a kind of proto-biochemistry. Another way to look at this was that Wai Dan external alchemy used tangible substances like I've been mentioning, mercury, lead, cinnabar, to create an elixir. Nei Dan was more about using the souls or spirits of these substances, not the actual physical material itself. And these essences or spirits of these alchemical substances, again, using all the accumulated knowledge and wisdom going back to the Zhou dynasty and the Yi Jing, would be employed in prescribed ways using, as I said, meditation, exercises, and rituals employing long-established alchemical terms. In fact, Homer Dubbs had written that much later on, when the Arabs and Europeans began exploring the powers of alchemy, the Chinese had already spiritualized this art, taking it beyond the ingestion of elixirs. There became no need to mix up these concoctions. And this Dan internal form of alchemy soon began to be viewed in the late Tang as a much higher and more sophisticated form of alchemy. Consuming gold was seen as sort of out of style. It was like in the Zhou dynasty. When the I Ching came out, the classic of changes, these hexagrams and their hidden meanings were a much higher form of prognostication compared to reading cracks and tortoise shells and the bones of oxen like they did in the Shang. So you could say, just as the Chinese were finishing up and 
washing their hands of this notion of an ingestible elixir of life. The Arabs and Europeans were just beginning to explore it and wonder themselves about the possibilities. The number of deaths attributed to Wai Dan going back to the first Qin emperor and perhaps Han Wu Di is well known. Besides those two, the father-son Tang emperors, Xianzong and Muzong, they both left their earthly forms too soon in life, father Xianzong dying at age 41 and Muzong at 28. And the son, Muzong, he knew his father had died at the hands of these alchemists and magicians feeding him all these Taoist potions, and he had them all executed when he began his reign. Yet he, too, the temptation was too great, and he, like his father, perished from death by alchemy. Zhu Wen, who put the final sword into the Tang Dynasty in 907 and went on to reign as the founding emperor of the later Liang Dynasty, though he was murdered by his son, Zhu Yogui, in 912, he was already on his deathbed after chasing the same dreams of immortality. During the Song Dynasty, it was written that Emperor Zhenzong signed off on the establishment of a laboratory in the Imperial Academy led by Taoist scholar and alchemist Wang Chie. He's the biggest name in alchemy from the Song. The emperor wasn't seeking the elixir of life. His instructions to Wang Jie were to engage in the manufacture of alchemical gold. And from his efforts, Wang Jie, quote, produced for the throne artificial gold and silver, amounting to many tens of thousands of cash, brilliant and glittering beyond all ordinary treasures, end quote. The Ming Dynasty Emperor Jia Jing, he too loved his alchemical potions. After 45 years in the top spot, he succumbed to mercury poisoning. And following the death of Emperor Jia Jing, the greatest pharmacologist, herbalist, acupuncturist, and physician, Li Shijun, a contemporary of this emperor, authoritatively called out this practice of Wai Dan as hazardous to your health. Li Shijun lived during the long reign of the Jia Jing Emperor, and years after the emperor died, he mentioned about the downside of consuming potions derived from toxic heavy metals in his great work, the Ban Cao Gang Mu, the Compendium of Materia Medica. From Ge Hong in the 4th century to Li Shijun in the 16th, 1,200 years. That's a lot of mercury that was consumed in China. The last emperor of China to die from alchemical poisoning was the Qing ruler Yongzheng. Now you'd think after all these years and stacks of dead bodies and the dire warnings of Li Shijun, he should have known better. But the temptation of eternal life was something Emperor Yongzheng could not bring himself to turn away from. And he, too, perished in 1735, aged only 56. And as the Tang Muzong Emperor was said to have done punishing those responsible for mixing these elixirs that killed his father, the Emperor, it's believed Qianlong, as well, punished the alchemists whose concoctions led to his father's early demise. So late in Chinese history, it was already well known the dangers of these elixirs. But in our day, we know of the dangers of abusing narcotic drugs, yet this has hardly stopped addicts from abusing them. And so it was with these Waitan potions. But as I mentioned, after the Tang, more and more Taoists who pined for eternal life, or at least a very long life, turned to internal alchemy. And though external alchemy was still practiced, people found it a little too toxic for their liking. 
Homer Dubbs had quite a bit to say about alchemy in China. He wrote, quote, Because alchemy built up the mass of empirical observations, upon which was later founded the science of chemistry, it has been considered to contain a large admixture of scientific knowledge. In its beginning, however, it must have been sheer magic and superstition, an attempt by calling upon certain gods and by manipulating certain sensational and poorly understood minerals to achieve ends that are properly religious. The empirical findings of alchemy resulted from failures in this goal, so that the scientific character of alchemy was an unlooked-for byproduct. End quote. Chinese history has periods where alchemy was criticized and fell from favor and was practiced in the shadows, avoiding the consequences of penalties that state prohibitions placed on its practice. In these underground environments, Wai Dan external alchemy in China more and more grew into one of the dark and mysterious arts. And though it may have slowly disappeared from the popular narratives of the history of China that mostly focused on the emperors and the imperial court, it remained popular with the masses who had the wherewithal to get their hands on an elixir of life. Let me quote Dubs once again, quote, A millennium of failure, together with the increasingly anti-superstitious attitude of the Chinese-educated class, brought about the downfall of alchemy. In 14th century China, alchemy had already dropped away. And since the 17th century, experimental alchemy had practically ceased to exist there. Only the amalgamation of alchemy and religion enabled alchemy to persist and to secure the devotion of humanity until its inherent chemical knowledge became sufficiently large. Insofar as chemistry has developed out of alchemy, religion has been a nursemaid to science. End quote. The Arab alchemical tradition is a whole other story, and they pursued the elixir of life as vigorously as anyone in China did, and their history is equally filled with alchemists who kept the tradition alive. And then once Europeans were exposed to this dark art, they too embraced it as enthusiastically as everyone else, for eternal life is something humankind, wherever it exists, still can't bring itself to give up hope for. So let's bring down the curtain on this introduction to the history of Chinese alchemy. I wrestled with the idea of drilling down much deeper and talking more about the theory, the diagrams, the effects of yin and yang, of the five elements, maybe you know, read some translated quotes from some of the scriptures, but that is a bottomless pit of esoteric information that if you haven't studied it before, would just overwhelm more than make things clear. In the Chinese language, one is blessed with an, an extraordinary plethora of books and texts to read, starting with the Daozang and everything else produced by China's great alchemists who lived between the Han and Tang dynasties. In the West, interest in this subject has been solid going back to the 19th century. There are no small number of books, articles, academic papers, doctoral theses that can offer you as deep of a dive as you're willing to take. I'll have links at the show notes at the website for anyone interested to climb inside their bathyscaphe and take this subject all the way down to the Marianas Trench. It's that deep, I assure you. Besides Obed Simon Johnson, H.J. Shepard, Homer Dubbs, Joseph Needham, and Nathan Sivan, 
there were a few others who attempted to bring understanding of Taoist alchemy to interested readers outside of China. And these included Fabrizio Pregadio, Arthur Whaley, Isabel Robinet, Farzine Baldrian Hussein, Catherine Depew, and so many others. If someone managed to stumble upon the elixir of life, the Xiandan, they kept the secret to themselves. But despite all that, Interest and fascination has never waned. The history of alchemy outside of China is a whole other story and no less interesting. I hope between these two episodes, if you didn't know much of anything about the subject before, that you're sufficiently enlightened. And if you'd like to go find out more, you're in luck. Okay, that's it for episode 300, onwards and upwards to Something New. That was a good album when it came out in 1964. Once again, let me give a shout-out to all of you all over this crazy world of ours, to everyone who has been at my side since the beginnings of the CHP back in June of 2010, and to everyone else who bumped into me along the way and never left. And of course, if you only just discovered the CHP, my sincerest thanks as well. And if you'll indulge me in joining the cacophony of independent podcasters soliciting you for donations... There's a whole number of ways you can help support my elixir habit. Patreon and CHP Premium gets you early access to all shows, plus extra material if you just can't get enough of me, as well as other ways to donate strings of copper cash to this family program on a mission. Thanks so much to everyone who, over the years, have donated so generously, not to mention so often. Okay, that's all I got for you this time. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from an undisclosed location somewhere in Los Angeles in the state of confusion. Pencil me in two weeks from now for what can only be described as another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.